Welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 428. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast. Before we get on to our super guest today, I'd like to give a quick shout out and thanks for putting up a five-star review of this show to Erica Bushwell, who did a review on Apple Podcasts. This week's interview is with Ryan Sheckle. Ryan is the host of the podcast Every Breath Counts and is an inspirational leader at work and in his life. Ryan was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at the age of 18. Today, nearing 40 years old, he continues to beat the odds. Ryan's an inspiration in how he leads by example. He has defied his disease to compete in grueling sports events and have a fabulous family. In this conversation with Ryan, we discuss his journey, how he finds inspiration, and how he has sculpted and lives his mission. Find all the show notes on mintodial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Ryan Sheckle, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. I had the luck of being on your show. Talk about leadership. And uh, what happened is that I got interested in your own journey, which is um, really remarkable and touched me. Quite deeply. So how about you describe who you are, how you'd like to describe yourself? Yes, absolutely. Minter, thank you so much for having me. And and look, it's a privilege to be on the number six leadership podcast in the world. So congratulations. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. A recent yeah, nomination. Thanks. thanks for having me. So look, I shouldn't be here. What? I I shouldn't have the career I have. I shouldn't have the family I have. I shouldn't be alive. So at 18 years old, I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, which is a rare and chronic and life-ending lung disease. And only 70,000 people in the world have it. So, you know, because of CF, I was told that I wouldn't live past 30 years old. I was told that I wouldn't have biological children. And three years into my career, I actually wanted to make a career change. And I was told I didn't fit the profile of the career I wanted to get into. So now at 38 years old, I'm eight years past that 30-year-old deadline I was given to live. I've got two amazing sons that are the light of my life. And I've built an award-winning sales career in the industry that I was told I didn't fit the sales profile for. So, you know, that's kind of the rundown. And then furthermore, you know, I've accomplished a bunch of physical feats that someone with a life-ending disease shouldn't be allowed to uh, achieve or shouldn't be fortunate enough to take part in. Played college baseball, ran an ultra marathon at the age of 37, and continued to push myself every single day to do things that I wasn't supposed to be able to do and to inspire people to do things in their life uh, that others might not expect them to be able to do. Wow. Okay. So, um, as you know, (laughs) Ryan, I have, uh, I have come across cystic fibrosis. There are only 70,000 people in the world, but I have come across three uh, people who have had CF cystic fibrosis. So give us a little bit more understanding of of what it's like to live with CF because it, it is not an easy malady to live with. 
No, no, it's not. So, you know, some background as well, right? I was diagnosed at 18 years old. That's and weird, right? By, Normally. It's, it's very, it's uncommon. It's very uncommon. And especially nowadays, because cystic fibrosis is a, it's one of those diseases that is, it's like very well studied and understood. And it's one of the things that I go through in like your first month in medical school, which by the way, I did not go through. I'm not <laughs> after. Um, but it's very, it's very regimented in the way the genetics work. So it's a double recessive disease. So your parents may be carriers and people can be carriers of the disease without knowing they have it or are carriers. So it's, it's incredibly rare to get. And even if both of your parents are carriers, there's only a 25% um, chance that a child will get it. So the way that it manifests in terms of symptoms is uh, what happens is the lungs cannot secrete mucus. So you end up coughing a lot and it's really difficult to breathe. And that's always the first kind of symptom. But also most CF patients are malnourished because your body also cannot absorb the fat that you take in. So they're also very skinny. And normally this presents itself very early in life. And there's a lot of very sick, unfortunate children that suffer with this disease. And sometimes there's rare circumstances like my own where it's not diagnosed right away. But now at this time, you know, in the history of, of our lives, they're actually uh, testing for this at birth. So it would be very rare nowadays for someone to not know they have cystic fibrosis. But back in the 80s when I was born, uh, they didn't test every single infant. So, Well, you know, there's some diseases which are, are less visible. Uh, sure. And, um, and the, the funny story that I'm thinking of is the fact that my daughter was diagnosed, uh, I think it was at the age of 14, with acute dyslexia. Okay, yeah. And there are, you, there's, so somehow... It just strikes well with CF in particular because of the symptoms that you get and the coughing and the wheezing that just comes with an inability to secrete and and then the, the you know unsticking all the mucus which is in mm -hmm. in your tracheals and wherever else they are. I'm not I'm not a doctor by any means. Um, <laughs> you would imagine that it was something that people would have cottoned on to from a physical perspective. Yes, yeah, so you know what's crazy is. Um... I had some symptoms growing up and I, I think back to when I first started playing sports at a very young age and I played a lot of sports growing up. It was a big part of my life and I was playing youth basketball and I, re I recall a situation, I think I was in third grade when I first started playing and uh, I, got, I got really winded really early in a basketball game and my father was the head coach and I almost passed out. And, you know, he said, well, why don't you go lay down, take a breath, and we'll kind of figure out what's going on. Well, you know, we ended up going to the doctor shortly thereafter just to get checked up and see what might be going on. And, you know, because cystic fibrosis is so rare, it wasn't like a red flag. And they diagnosed me with athletic-induced asthma. And they said, yeah, you, your lungs aren't working as well as the normal person's does. So we think that you have asthma. Take this inhaler use this inhaler before you work out and you'll feel better. You'll feel better. And I also presented with uh, digestive issues to where I was thin. I was very thin growing up. And, you know, the doctor said, well, 
it's probably lactose intolerance. A lot of people can't handle milk and cheese and fatty foods, and, and we think it's probably lactose intolerance. So it's, it's interesting looking back and reflecting, saying, oh, there were red flags. It's just putting it all together to be this kind of rare disease disorder. It didn't make a lot of sense, because like I said, there's only 70,000 people in the world that have this rare disease. So it's not something that gets diagnosed on a daily basis. That's hmm. absolutely crazy. So ultra marathon, um, first of yeah. all, what the F, I mean, holy smokes <laughs> for anybody, how do you need to, um, prepare for it differently than your other non CF colleagues running alongside you? So I think the preparation is similar and I want to, I want to focus not on the, the preparation as much as the purpose in, in running it. Right. So. I always felt that I kind of had a calling to inspire people in my life. And because of that, I wanted to do something so physically challenging, given the disease that I had, that it would not leave any shadow of a doubt in the mind of anyone that anything was possible in their life. So I, I told myself if I could do something physical, endurance was always an issue for me. I just, I was never a runner. I'm, not, I'm still not a runner. I try, but it was always a struggle. It was that constant pressure in the lungs, that burning. It never felt good. It was always difficult. So I told myself if I could do something so physically demanding that no one imagined someone with CF could do, it would inspire others to dream big in their own life. So, you know, I had the goal and I was, I took inspiration from a lot of different people and I was looking for inspiration from, you know, people online, friends, and this, this marathon idea always just crept into my mind, but I always suppressed it. It was like, well, maybe I could do something else that inspires other people, you know? And, uh, and I finally came back to it and said, well, I'm 37 years old. If ever I am going to do something like this, I am not getting younger. I have to do it now. So the preparation was crazy, but I think like any goal you have in your life, whether it be business, career, personal, I think you have to have a very strong idea, purpose, and endpoint in mind. And then I think you have to reverse engineer the process to get there. So whether you have a disease, whether you have a goal, whether you have anything that you want to achieve, I think once you understand what that goal is, all you have to do is create a blueprint for it. And I think you have to have the mentality that it's possible. So I understood that I wanted to run a marathon and, and I ended up finding this race that was pretty meaningful to me. It was in the foothills of the um, Finger Lakes in upstate New York, which is a very near and dear place to my heart. I grew up uh, on the lake in Canandaigua and this was through the foothills of Canandaigua Lake. It was gonna be a beautiful race and it was a 50 kilometer race. And I understood that if I was going to run 50 kilometers, it would take months of training. It would take dialing in my nutrition so that not only my lungs, but my, my every part of my body was prepared, that I would have the sustenance and the energy to do something like this. And then it was also the mindset of understanding there's going to be difficulty and weak points throughout this race. And I'm going to have to train myself to overcome the desire to quit throughout the race. So for 10 months, it was waking up early, 
And I, I say that's important because I wanted to do all my training when my kids weren't around. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do it while they're sleeping because I didn't want to take time away from them. And I didn't want to take time away from my career to make something like this happen because I have multiple goals, right? I want to be the best father I can. I, I, I want to do well in my career. So I couldn't take away from those things to achieve this fitness goal for myself. So it was waking up early, you know, start running at 4.30 in the morning, run for a couple hours. And I understood that if I could run two miles by the end of the first month that I trained, well, then I could, I could aggregate miles on top of that. And I did. And, and it, was a difficult, it was a difficult task trying to build up to those first four or five mile runs. But then once I, I ran five miles, well, now I can go seven. Now I can go 10. Now I could go 15. And I ran um, 1,000 miles over the course of 10 months in preparation for this race. And, you know, I was very prepared when I, when I towed that start line and, mm. and was able to complete it. Well, congratulations. So, Ryan, as I listen to you, I can't help but think that you've got to where you've got to because of your mindset. I'm wondering what the little story in your brain is to the your ability to be at 38 years old and and running marathons. Is it is it really all about mindset, or is do you do you see luck? Uh, oh man, surroundings. I love that you asked that question. Um, I think mindset is first and foremost the most important, the most important aspect of achieving greatness in your life. And I attribute all of my success to having a delusional optimist mindset. Mm. And it's not a common, it's not a common term. I've heard a couple of people use it, but I love the idea of being a delusional optimist. And I say that because I think in your mind, you have to understand that anything is possible. And that's that optimism, right? At, at all costs, you can achieve anything you ever want to achieve. And I think the delusional part is important as well. I think you have to disregard failure and negative thoughts and really focus and hone in on, on this idea that you can do anything. And I think having that mindset has really allowed me to achieve in fitness, in business, in health. And it's really kind of provided the framework for me to really go anywhere I want to go. So one of the thoughts that I have as I thought about this interview is with your podcast, for example, every breath counts, your intentionality in everything you're doing, it feels like very high expectations because yeah. you know, it's not because you want to do it that things always go the way you want to uh, work out. And, and for other people who don't have an illness to push them forward, how do you yeah. how do you bridge into that need? So I want to talk first of all about your own expectations about yourself and how you live with those. So I don't believe anybody in this world wants to be average. However, I don't know that everybody knows how to be great. So it's different, right? 
I don't think anyone desires to be average. I think people have dreams. And whether they're big, ambitious dreams, or whether they're just wanting to achieve different benchmarks in their life. You know, I grew up in a house, in a middle-class family in upstate New York. And, you know, it was a very idyllic childhood. But I didn't have a lot growing up. My dad worked a manufacturing job. He worked trick work. It was two days on, two days off, fireman schedule, 12-hour shifts. And my mom stayed home and raised us and worked odds and ends jobs in retail. And I loved my life, but I also understood there was so much out there. And it, it wasn't, it was looking back and reflecting on it, you know, like I was happy. I was happy, but as I continued to grow, I saw potential for so much more. And not to say that my parents weren't doing everything they could and they didn't have their dream life. But in my head, I just thought, for whatever reason, there's, there's more that I want. And understanding that, I had to find a way to achieve it. And to me, it meant taking risks. And putting myself in situations to where those goals were possible. Um, I, I, there are a bunch of things, but you mentioned us. So that sounded like you have siblings. And there's a 25% chance you have to explain what happens now. You're 18 years old. You, uh, you have other siblings. What, what actually goes on in the family at that moment? I don't know. Tell us about your siblings, too. You know... It, it, that time in my life was interesting. My, I have a brother, and my brother's my, he's one of my best friends, and we're so close. And, um, and actually, in, in reflecting on it, you know, he, I've talked to him about it in the past, and there's been questions in his mind, and he doesn't have cystic fibrosis, but he's questioned, like, why not me? You know, like, why you? Why were you afflicted by this? Why, why was it harder for you physically to grow up than it was me? And, and there was almost some guilt in that sure. for him. And that, and that goes to show just like how loving people can be. You know, he wanted the best for me, but at the same time, he, he was like, I'll take that on. I'll take it on if you want me to. So I had a very loving family. Um, and at the time that I was diagnosed, the future was uncertain. It really was. My parents had no idea. I had no idea what cystic fibrosis was. You know, this was before the age that the internet was big. You couldn't just go and Google cystic fibrosis. Like, we had to use those brochures, you know, that they actually have at the doctor's office looking back at that time. And, um, and the future was uncertain. And it, it truly did. It it put a monkey wrench into our lives. And I remember the day that I was diagnosed and, you know, I went in for a test and I was, I was sitting down in the kitchen with my mom waiting for the phone call. And, and the, the second that phone call came in, I was on the phone with a doctor and, you know, she said, Ryan, you are positive for cystic fibrosis. Like we expected. Let's talk about what this means for your life. Hmm. And, at that point, I said, okay, well, you know, uh, how, how long will I live? What, what I, let me know, doc. And she said, the average lifespan for someone with CF is 30 years old. 
and you know you'll never have your own biological children and for a family where family was the utmost importance understanding that someone might not be around forever was was it was a shock it was a shock um but you know you can take that shock and and you can be defeated by it and you can get depressed by it or you can use it to kind of fuel you to do things and i say to this day the best thing that ever happened to me and my family is me being diagnosed with cystic fibrosis because what it did and this is applicable to so many people in so many different situations being diagnosed with cystic fibrosis defined my adversity so many people do not understand the struggles that they're facing they don't have focus and i didn't have a lot of focus growing up i didn't i was lazy i only did things that i was good at if something got hard i quit and being diagnosed with cystic fibrosis gave me the focus on the adversity that i was facing and allowed me it freed me to overcome something that was in my life that i was going to have to fight for forever so i was forced into a mindset and into a, a, a lifestyle of overcoming struggle and challenge and making the best of it. And it translates so well to everything. We are certainly going to get into that. And I'm, I'm thinking about how when you had to onboard it, you're 18 years old, you see yeah. 30 is quite far away for an 18 year old. I mean, that's for old people, right? You know, as an 18 year old. So maybe that yeah, right. also helps. But I, I usually hear people say, I don't want to be defined by my disease. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a counter in for me, a counterintuitive position, or at least something I'm not used to hearing. And, and do anyone ever push back on that or? I mean, no. So that's a, that's a great point, Minter. And, and if, if we had this conversation 10 years ago, I would have a different answer for you. I can guarantee you that. I, I hid my disease um, in a lot of ways. I, I, didn't, I didn't hide it like, oh, I don't have this. I accepted it. Um, I did not want it to define me at all, not the disease. So, you know, I went on to play college baseball. I played college baseball the year that I was diagnosed. Uh, my mom, bless her heart, you know, she did everything she could for me. And she ended up actually calling the college that I went to and getting me a single room. So I didn't have other people in the room when I was doing medication daily. Right. I had to do a nebulizer and, and chest therapy twice a day just to kind of maintain my health. And, and I was embarrassed by that. Is, is that pounding, right? To and that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I had a vest and it was a compression vest and air was blown into it and it would kind of like tap my lungs and, and it would bring up the mucus from my lungs so I could spit it out. And I would be spitting out this phlegm and I was embarrassed by it because I was, I didn't want that to be my identity. I didn't want to be the sick kid. So no, I did not want, I did not want cystic fibrosis to be who I was or define me. But in reflecting on it, I think, you know, with age and with perspective, it wasn't the disease that was identifying me. It was overcoming it. And I'm happy. I'm happy to own that as my identity. I'm happy to own the idea that no matter what I'm faced with, 
I understand that it may be difficult, but I can't overcome it. So in that regard, while I don't want to be defined by the disease, I'm happy to be defined by my reaction to it. So for someone who isn't, let's say, qualified as sick, uh, we all have a, a timeline as far as mortality oh, yeah. is concerned. Yours, let's say, is, is more pressing. Uh, I can't say it's obvious because you've obviously broken, you know, let's say the average. Right. You still have it out there. And, and you have your podcast, Every Breath Counts. And I keep back to this idea of this expectation. Because if you know every breath counts, that has to be a fairly ominous position because every day, you know, and I, and I think about these things as well in, in my own little way, but trying to make the most of every day. Yeah. It, so every breath counts is an interesting, um, I, I, there was a very intentional mantra, a very intentional title for this podcast uh, because it's twofold. Every breath counts can be taken one of two ways, and I think it should be taken both. I think it is a mantra or an idea of gratitude. Like, every breath you take counts. You are lucky. You are blessed. I don't care that what situation you're in. You're alive. You woke up today. That is a gift. It is a gift that you should appreciate. And I can understand that people are in situations where they're struggling but you're alive, you know, there's hope. So gravitate towards that, appreciate it. Find the, find the happiness, find the appreciation in every single breath you take because you don't know if it's gonna be your last. And, and while I know what my disease is, so many people don't. There's so many situations where people have struggles and they don't understand what's going on. It's undiagnosed, right? It doesn't mean it's not real. It's just undiagnosed. And on the other hand, I think there's an urgency to every breath counts for the same reason, because you don't know when your last breath is going to be. There is a sense of urgency to take advantage of every breath you have. So appreciate the breath, but use it, right? Because if you let it go by passively, then you're no closer to your goals than you were before you took it. So I think it's twofold and, and I think it's a very important message and it's been said so many ways, so many ways where it's like, you know, you never know which day is your last. And Life and is short. Yeah, life is short. And look, you, you really, you never know, you never know. And I, I like to go back to kind of this, this incidents that has happened in my life recently in the past three years because you know my dad was an amazing role model for me he was he's an unbelievable man and i truly feel like i learned a lot of my mentality from him and my work ethic and my zest for life and my appreciation of friendship and compassion and at 62 years old uh, i moved my family from atlanta georgia home to rochester new york to be with family, to be around my parents. And within six months of moving my family back to my hometown, my father was diagnosed with brain cancer. And he was told he had two years to live. Now, this is a healthy guy, as healthy as could be. He was in better shape than I was. 
you know, living life to the fullest. And he had a very similar mindset to what I had. Like, it's this delusional optimism. I'm going to beat this. It's not going to hold me down. Brain cancer can't stop me. Well, I think it's important to understand, like, there's some diseases that you can't beat. And he died within six months. But it didn't stop him from pursuing that mindset and appreciating every day he had, you know? So, yeah, you don't know. Well, you could be as healthy as could be and not know that you have something kind of lingering and you could be gone in six months. But live every day understanding that that's a possibility. So I'm sorry for your loss. Oh, well, thank you. And get, getting to this other topic, which is translating your urgency yeah. to, to like, quote unquote, well people. How, how do, because it, it just strikes me so much, Ryan, in my conversations mm. with people, the majority of those who have cottoned on to this notion that life is short or and need to have purpose within their life have had a, a near-death experience of some sort, some massive upfront view of the finality and mortality that inhabits all of us. But for the rest yes. of us, we kind of push it off like 18-year-olds, you know, not going to happen to me. Well, I've got time. And, and so what do you find in your approach when you're talking to other people actually switches the light on for them? Is it just listening to you? Or? No, you know, it's, um, I'd love to think so. I'd love to think so. But I think it's, it's more active than that. I think truly flipping that switch takes an insane amount of self-awareness and humility. And I've heard it said in the past that, you know, the best way to truly find your purpose and understand where you're supposed to be is to write your own eulogy. Mm -hmm. or write your own obituary. And I think that kind of gets to the point of what you're saying, right? Is, is well, you could have a, a traumatic near-death experience and that enlightens you to what your life has been and what you have and have not achieved, right? Because you're confronted with this idea that there is no more life. And I think kind of writing your own obituary, it, it does put you in that similar mindset. Um, I don't think you have to necessarily do that, but I think you have to intentionally be self-aware. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do, but I think you have to force yourself into it. And I think you have to really sit down and take a deep dive into what you want out of life. If you don't understand what your goals are, what your, you could say purpose, but where you wanna be, then, then you'll never have the focus to get there, whether the timeline is 5, 10, 15, 40 years. At least know where you want to go. Have a direction. Have a north star, right? Have a, have a general purpose. Yeah. And then once you have that, then I think this is crucial. And this is what I speak about with, uh, with my team as well in my career. You have to surround yourself with the right people, no matter what situation you're in. And I have, a, I have a saying that I think you need to surround yourself and you need to seek out the three C's in your network. You have to seek out cheerleaders. 
you have to seek out challengers and you have to seek out champions. And if you bring this full circle into my life, it's a really great kind of like microcosm of how you create a team. When I was growing up, I had cheerleaders, a lot of them. My whole family was cheerleaders. My parents always told me, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Ryan, you're great. You're amazing. You're killing it. Look at you. T-ball. You're hitting home runs. Great job. You know, you, you could be president one day if you want. Whatever you want to do. Well, that's all well and good because it gave me confidence. It gave me optimism. It, it was like a, it, it was a nice like attaboy, good job, you know? And then when I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, and looking back, I saw that doctor as a challenger. Hey, Ryan, you're not going to live to be 30. You'll never have kids. This isn't possible. You can't do this. Well, that, that brought me humility. It brought me, it, it, it brought me down to earth. It gave me a challenge. It also and gave then you fire. Most, fire yeah, right. well, look, and I don't like being told I can't do something. Yeah. <laughs> and we can talk <laughs> about that, but I do not like that. Um, but because of that, then I was able to seek a champion. And a champion, no matter where you are in life, is someone that can pull you up when you're down, can humble you when you're riding high, but can also help facilitate growth in your life in terms of actionable steps to get better. And if you have those three things, then you can lean on them all in different situations in your life or your business to accomplish greatness. So I think it's crucial in every aspect of life. All right, so now we're going to get to the story of purpose. And, and I want to start with your own personal purpose, one that I picked up from the website, uh, your website, yeah. ryanshekel.com. Um, I think, or maybe it was actually the podcast, I can't remember. But anyway, what, I'll read it out, and, and, and you just have to confirm that it is your purpose. Uh, but I want to get to afterwards to, to sort of sure. unpick it. I am to build a world in which every individual sees himself as the hero of their story, has the confidence to turn that story into reality and the courage to share their story with the world. So I'm yeah. imagining that is your purpose. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is. And um, you'll, you'll probably appreciate this. Uh, I, would, I would call it a just cause, right? And, you know, kind of going back, I don't want to take credit for this. Uh, the, the amazingly intelligent uh, Simon Sinek wrote about it in his book, The Infinite Game. And kind of as I've advanced in my career and in my life, I, I was looking for something as my North Star. And in listening to Simon Sinek and in reading his book, I said, you know what? I think a just cause would benefit me. Because I was getting to a point in my life where I had achieved a lot of what I wanted to achieve. I was successful in my career. I, you know, I have this amazing family. And I said, well, what's my next 5, 10, 15 years look like? 30 years, you know, because I don't, I don't believe that my time is up. So I, I need to have a purpose. And, you know, so I, I did it in the form of this just cause. And yeah, so there's a couple things about this purpose that I think are important. I think when you are self-aware and introspective and you can put a purpose to your life, I think you should make one that is unachievable, 100%. And I think that's important because if you create an achievable goal, what happens when you achieve it? You're done. You, you, there's, now there's no purpose. So for me to say, I aim to build a world in which every individual sees themselves as a hero of their own story. Look, I'd love for everybody to see that, but I don't think that that's possible. So got more work. I can, 
Yeah. So I can today, I can do everything in my power to help one person see themselves as a hero of their own story. And then great. Well, what do I do tomorrow? Well, I got to help another person and then another and another and another. So I think having an infinite goal is very important. It's very important. And, you know, because of the past that I've had and because of the doubt that I've had in my life, I understood that seeing yourself as the protagonist, as the hero of your own story is, is important. And it puts you in the mindset to believe in yourself and, and, and understand that being a hero is possible. And then once you achieve your goals, then yeah, share it share it turn it into reality and share that with the world because the world needs it the world needs hope the world needs inspiration there's always going to be to be people that are searching for a role model and you know they might not have them in their life so put it out there they'll find you you know i i first of all i was thinking well you know not everybody's a good storyteller but ryan you clearly are so now I want to now this is always the let's say the the vortex story mm. which is your professional life. So mm. you are you've had success you're a regional manor, manager at Arthrex which uh, whose mission is helping surgeons treat their patients better. That's what I picked yes. up from their website. So yes. what I wanted to do is see how you've let's say consolidated your personal purpose with the 13 or whatever years you've actually been working at Arthrex and how, what's the narrative that goes on in Ryan's mind yeah. with regard to so, the hours he's spending at work? <laughs> so um, I am the um, sports medicine sales manager is, is the technical title for Prodigy Surgical which is the agency that sells for Arthrex uh, within the area of New York and Vermont. So um, my career is interesting. I was a teacher for three years. I was an elementary special education teacher for three years in Atlanta, Georgia. I moved to Atlanta when I graduated from school, got a career teaching, and um, you know, tying into the full purpose, I understood that if I was going to be able to have kids, um, I was married at the time when I was a teacher. If I wanted to have kids, I had to have financial control of my career. And as a teacher, I couldn't do that because I understood that I was going to have to have children via in vitro fertilization. And I wanted to be able to provide for my family and actually have a family. So I decided, you know what? I had a friend who was doing medical sales. It sounded like an amazing career. The way he described it was... It sounded so much fun. You get to be in the operating room selling to doctors. How cool is that? I could help in surgery. Like I have an education degree and doctors are going to listen to me. That's cool. So I ended up um, applying for a couple jobs. And this goes back to that part of the story was I applied with a Fortune 100 medical device company. I'm not going to say the name of it where you have to take a personality test to get into the company. And I, I took the personality test, had an interview with their HR department, and right away they said, you know what, you don't fit the mold of a, of a sales rep. You know, you're not gonna really get a job in this career, and, and you know, you can, we're not gonna take this interview any further. 
well, mentor, that's that, that's that little thing. You can't do this. And I was that really, really gritted at me. So I ended up getting a job with, uh, with a distributorship or an agency that represented Arthrex, um, in Georgia. And I made it, I made it my passion to take all the business from this large company and, and make sure that they didn't exist in my territory. And I ended up taking a, a small little territory in downtown Atlanta from $3 million or $300,000 annually to $10 million, wow. uh, kind of creating a team and doing that. And, and I ended up from there, uh, this is where the purpose came in. And I said, you know what? I've done, I've done the sales thing. I've been a, a territory manager. I want to help others achieve the same success. And it goes to that. I want to help other people have the success I had. I want them to feel the same way about their career that I do. I want to be more of a manager so I can help facilitate that growth within others. And it just so happened that um, after years of networking, I, I wanted to move back to my hometown for a long time and years of networking and a, a lot of conversations and interviews, uh, a position to open up that allowed me to do so. And it's now my passion to teach surgeons how to treat their patients better within my hometown and to help educate our young sales force on how to do the job of a sales rep the right way with honesty with humility, with pride, and and grow their own careers, and and I feel privileged to be able to do that. Hmm. Well, in in my little head, I'm thinking, oh, my brother-in-law, who's a thoracic surgeon, I guess I'm going to have to send him your way, or he's in Baltimore. Yeah. But I'm also thinking about my son, who when he went and visited the OR with Seamus, um, he fainted. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking he's not going to need this job yet. That happens. I've had interviews with uh, potential candidates, and it's actually something we do quite often is we'll do a ride-along. And we say, hey, let's, let's kind of come into the operating room and see how you handle it. Because it's, it's different. The operating room is different. It's a different culture. And you know, some people, some people can handle it. Some people can't. And sometimes it's just standing that long. Surgery takes a long time. And there's different smells and you have a mask on. Look, this year, as, as much as any, it's, it's always funny hearing people complain about having to wear a mask for a couple hours because we all look back at, you know, if, we, if you've ever worked in an operating room, it's, I've had a mask on for eight hours at a time, you know, and all these surgeons are like all day, every day, mask, gown, under bright lights, sweating. So yeah, it's definitely different in the operating room. So with your work at, at uh, Arthrex or Prodigy Surgical, to be more precise, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, what have you learned uh, in your management, your leadership skills that stands out for you and it's something that needs to be transmitted to others? So there's, a, I mean, there's so much. One of the cores that I feel like makes a great sales rep, a great manager, a great business person is humility. I think you have to understand what you know, what you don't know, and you have to be honest about it. I always tell my sales reps, if you don't know the answer to a question, understand you can say, I don't know. It's really important. The last thing you want to do is try to lie about what you know or try to pretend you know something you don't because there's implications to that. And the implications in an operating room are real. 
if you lie about something in the operating room, if you don't know something and you try to fudge your way out of it by making something up, there could be dire consequences to that action. And, you know, that's true in a lot of different businesses, especially sales, where you may be trying to get someone to buy something that they don't need. And that honesty and that humility of understanding, look, this is a service. I'm in a service industry. While I may be selling something, I am providing a service to you as a resource. I want to be of value. This is a partnership. And looking at it as a partnership is essential. It's never a one-time sale. It's always a partnership. And it's, it's your reputation. And it's your company's reputation. And it's the way you should live your life in every relationship. All right. So humility, great topic, lovely, lovely uh, characteristic. And I'm thinking how, how you always keep it because as you continue to have success, you've achieved, you know, you have your two wonderful sons, you've had success in your career, you're rising up in the ranks. What happens oftentimes is that the head swells and that yeah. humility dissipates and people look to you for the answer. And so A, I wanted you to answer that. And the second piece is for many people, they might wish to have humility. They might operate with humility, but their boss doesn't like it when you say, I don't know the answer. Mm. So in other words, your yeah. boss would be in this case. Good, good questions. So the first part of that question, I think is easy uh, to answer. And, and for me, you know, look, having a, having a disease, it's a constant reminder not, not to allow your head to get too big because you could be taken down at any point. And look, there's years where I think I'm doing great and all of a sudden I get sick and I'm in the hospital. It just happens. Take, Taken right? down takes another All Automatic turn. humility. <laughs> yeah. But I also have a theory that um, you need to seek difficulty in your life on a daily basis. And Overcoming adversity and fortitude is a muscle. And, you know, like, like we were talking about earlier, you know, you were out, you were out playing sports before, before we did this. And look, I think fitness is essential in your life because I think you need to put yourself in a situation to fail every single day and practice overcoming it because you understand when you encounter a situation where failure is an option, that is a forced situation to understand that you might not achieve everything, right? Because as soon as you allow failure to be an option, well, even if you do overcome it, it does kind of creep in as there as a possibility. So I like to take every morning, it's, all, it's my own little meditation, and I, I work out. I work out. I run, I lift weights, I, I play sports. Um, but, you know, if you go for a run at five in the morning, there will be times where you want to quit and there's going to be some thoughts that go through your head that are just grueling thoughts about how you can't do things and that is humility that is humility it's forced humility but it's also practice for fortitude because you can overcome it so i think putting yourself in situations in your life every single day uh, where you have to practice fortitude and overcoming adversity i think that opens you up to humility and it also practices overcoming it um, the second part of your question uh, was there was people who their bosses don't want them to say, I don't know. It's one thing to not know. And it's another to not care that you don't know. So 
what I want to say about that is if you, not everyone knows everything right away. And, and if your boss always has an answer for something and is a hundred percent sure of it, he's probably making stuff up or he's, he's talking about his experiences, but no one's a hundred percent certain that, that their idea is correct. So I think you can say, look, I don't know the answer to this, but I understand that this is where I can find the answer and I'll get back to you shortly with it and I will learn. And, and once I get you the answer, then I will understand the answer to this question in the future. So I think it's the humility, but also the self-awareness to learn. So no one knows everything, you know, but it's, it's not owning the fact that you don't know it. It's owning the solution as well. You know, I know, I know Jocko Willink is, is, uh, an amazing author and, and leadership expert. And he was in the Navy SEALs and he wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. Sure. And I think you have to practice extreme ownership in your life. I think you have to understand that when there's, when there's problems in your career, and, and problems can be sales quotas, it could be building a product, it could be managing a tough individual. You have to own that problem. And you, you can admit that you don't have the answer, but you need to own the solution. And it's not just finding the solution, it's executing on the strategy that you come up with uh, to overcome that. And, you know, I think, I think any good boss, at least, would appreciate the awareness that you are willing to learn and strategize and execute on a strategy that is going to be beneficial. So I don't know if this is a cheeky question, but as last zone, with your children, I'm assuming you're quite the cheerleader. I'm assuming you're also quite the challenger and champion. Uh, with your wife, who, mm. with whom you've had this, and I'm going to speak about a quick story, which is I wrote a book about empathy mm -hmm. and and so have been considered someone who, who knows a fair amount about the topic, but yeah. there are almost it, it, there are regular occurrences when my wife says to me, "Minter, <laughs> not so hot on the empathy score there, um, right?" So I'm wondering with with you what you know when you because you can't be perfect, no. So how do you overcome, let's say, moments where you diverge from your purpose or what you think you're supposed to be? And how do you handle that challenge? Hmm. So I think, and, and I'd be interested to get your opinion on this based on the, what you just said about your wife. I spoke about seeking different people in your network. Three C's. Um, when, I, when, I, when I met my wife, I was drawn to her immediately because she had all the characteristics that I did not. Hmm. You know, it's kind of like that opposites attract. I am this outgoing, ambitious, uh, out, I'm so, I want to hang out with people all the time. I'm also incredibly optimistic. My wife is very driven and focused and strategic and grounded. And when I first really had deep conversations with her, as we were getting to know each other and understanding each other, I thought, wow this person is going to be at the core of my life and we are going to be able to accomplish amazing things as a couple. 
and she's my champion. She's my champion. She's not a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. She's not. She's not. She will never say, "Great job, Ryan. You're doing fantastic. Here we go." You know, but she's also never going to put me down for no reason. She she has very similar goals and ambition, and she understands that together our loving relationship can can accomplish anything. And to me, I saw I I sought that out. You know, I was lucky to find her. I didn't go looking for her. But when I did, I was like, I've got to, I've got to have her in my life forever because this person compliments me so well. And it was this love grew out of that. So I understood that having that person as my life partner was going to be, it was going to make for an amazing life. And because we're different in a lot of ways, we're similar in a lot of ways as well. We're both incredibly driven um, in different ways. But because we work well together as a team, we approach parenting in a lot of ways where I may say, you know, I am a cheerleader. You're right about that, Mentor. I am a cheerleader for my kids in a lot of ways. And then sometimes Lisa has to say, Ryan, let's have a conversation about this. We, let's be strategic in what we're cheerleading. Let's be strategic in the challenging. And we work really well together, but I think that's the, that's the goal of a partnership, right? Mm. Is to make sure that you have someone that's compatible with you at, at so many levels. I think it speaks to the power of diversity. Yes. When you have diverse yes. mindsets, because if you're, if you're both of the same mold, I mean, it's easier at some level, but you certainly won't go quite as far. To, to misquote a Chinese proverb. So Ryan, lovely chatting with you. Um, you, the delusional optimist, motivational manager, inspirational leader. How can people uh, know more about what you're up to? Uh, certainly listen to your podcast and, and tell us what are, what's on your horizon for the future. Yeah. So I would love if, if everybody checked out the podcast every breath counts podcast and you know ryanshuckle.com and every breath counts podcast.com uh, kind of come together uh it's, it's a similar domain and website um but fortunately for me uh you know i actually was just nominated to be a part of the rochester finest program which is for young leaders in the rochester new york community that are up and coming in in leadership and business um, but also have a dedication to raising awareness to cystic fibrosis. And, and not everyone that's been nominated has cystic fibrosis. Actually, only a couple of us uh, this year have. There's 20, I think there's 21 finalists this year. Um, so I'm actually trying to help raise, raise awareness for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in addition to my podcast. And um, I'll be raising money this year as a nominee for the Rochester Finest Program. Um, and if the reason that it's important to raise money for cystic fibrosis is that there's not a cure. There is a lot of really novel medications that have helped improve the life of all of us with the disease. And it's amazing how great some of these medications are. Um, like for me, just two years ago, I had less than 40% lung function which is when you start talking about getting a double lung transplant 
And as soon as, as soon as you start talking about lung transplants and cystic fibrosis patients, that's really when, you know, that timeline, you see that timeline start to shrink. Well, I was offered the privilege to get on a new medication, a novel medication last year uh, that helped take my lung function from 40% back up to 70%, which is where I was in high school, which is right around that of a long-term smoker. So for me, that has been a blessing, a blessing. Now that medication isn't available for everyone with cystic fibrosis because of the, the way the genetic makeup is. So we're still trying to create medications to treat the disease. We're still trying to find a cure. We don't understand the long-term implications of some of these novel medications. They're brand new. They've never been tested. So we're trying to raise awareness to help find a cure for cystic fibrosis. And if you are so inclined to make a donation to try to help find a cure, then there's a link on that website. It's ryanshuckle.com. You could check out the podcast. You could donate to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation through the Rochester Finest Program. And, um, and yeah, you know, like I said, it's my purpose now to help to aim to build a world in which others see themselves as a hero of their own story. And that's what the podcast is about. It's stories about other people that have achieved success in their life and have actionable strategies on how you can be inspired and achieve that same success in yours. Beautiful, Ryan. Thank you for that. It's certainly been an inspiring chat with you. I've enjoyed it. I hope others oh, have. Oh, Mentor, thank you so much for having me. This has been a, a pleasure, and I love talking to you, and uh, I, I, I can't wait to continue our conversation. We shall, we shall, Ryan. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. i
precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.